Colossians 2, beginning in verse 6. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So last week we uh, worked our way through verse 6 and part of verse verse 7. Again, uh, if you look at your notes, just kind of remind you as to what it is that we're looking at when we read again verse 6, therefore, as Paul is writing to these Colossians, as you, as, uh, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So again, we, remember we said that when, when he says, as you have received, again, the emphasis is that something has been delivered to us, uh, something has been imparted to us. And again, very quickly, this is not a discovery where we've meditated and we've discovered this truth on our own or it came from inside of us, uh, but it was delivered to us, obviously by God through his messengers. And again, uh, he is emphasizing the fact of Jesus Christ in the sense that he had, that he was a, a person who lived in history, a real person. He had a body. Uh, again, the emphasis there, uh, which, is, which is important because it, that kind of thinking still happens where people think that there is a separation between that which is physical and that which is spiritual. And that that which is spiritual is uh, more holy or it is of greater value or those types of things. So we need to to make sure we don't allow that thinking to come into our mind. And it happens to Christians all the time. Some people think that, well, so if an individual serves as a missionary, they're really serving God. I mean, I do my part by serving in the kitchen and the nursery, but that's not much. Because we're thinking that because that's physical and it's not quote-unquote spiritual, it's of less value. So what we need to recognize is it's not of less value. What God is judging us on is, are you using the gifts God's given you to serve him? That's it. So if you serve as a missionary, terrific. All right? If you serve in the nursery and in the kitchen or what have you, terrific. The idea is that we serve uh, and we use whatever gifts, abilities, uh, we use our time, our resources in a way that honors the Lord. Uh, and if it's, if it's helping out someone in the church who's older and you tell no one and you, maybe you go cut their yard or you go clean their roof or all those types of things, that you're doing that for the Lord. There's, so this, there, we need to get rid of this hierarchy. Um, and we think that naturally. Uh, I know this happens in a lot of churches. Some people think, you know, they, I understand they say we need to have respect for the pastor, but remember the pastor's not closer to God than you are. Right? Some people think that he's literally closer to God. Like somehow when I sit down, God's next to me, 
if you sit down, God's in the next pew over. Um, that's not the case. Um, there is a, uh, there's a, a religious sect in the Philippines. Um, it's, it's made its way over to America in a few places where normally where there's a, a Filipino um, uh, um, group. And the way that it works is it's, it's kind of a combination of Christianity, Jehovah's Witness, and Mormonism. And you kind of, and Catholicism. So you roll it all into one. And no one's guaranteed heaven, but the one who has the best chance is the pastor. He's got the best chance out of everybody. So what I had one Filipino lady who, after she became a believer, she told me this. She goes, so everyone knows, don't make him mad at you. <laughs> so I guess that means he can keep you out. Uh, but anyway, so he's the closest. Then the next closest um, are the deacons. Yeah, they, they, they're the, they have a, they, so they don't have as good of a chance of going to heaven as a pastor does, but it's better than everybody else's. Then after the deacons, um, it's those who sing in the choir, which I guess is a great way to get people to sing in the choir. Uh, because you sing in the choir, again, uh, you don't have as good of a chance as the others to get to heaven, but you're still better than those who just sit in the pews. Um, but for those who are just sitting in the pews, at least they have a better chance to get to heaven than those who don't even come to the church. Uh, so there's that kind of that hierarchy that, that's kind of out there um, in, in, the, in that church or in that group. So we should make sure that we don't allow that to happen uh, with ourselves. Um, so um, think of it this way. And I like to think of it this way. So when I, when I am reading my Bible, that's a good thing. And God is pleased with that. When I am playing with my grandchildren, that's a good thing. And God is pleased with that as well. Now, that doesn't mean that I, my time with the grandkids should replace my time in the Bible. And I want to make sure that I don't allow my time in the Bible to replace the time that I should spend with my grandkids. We all can feel a tension of all the different things we need to get done and all the things that we're responsible for and how do we balance all, that, all those things out. So we need to make sure that we don't ever allow things, for example, we all have lots of responsibility just in our own life, you know, paying bills, keeping your house clean, all that kind of stuff. So don't allow yourself to think that, well, I'll get those things done when I get my Bible reading done. Now, you do need to do your Bible reading, but don't allow that to be an excuse as to why other things remain undone. Now, I know that can be hard, but God expects us to figure that out and figure out how much time we spend doing certain things. So don't think, because we can do this because we, I know I could do this because I was, my dad said I was really good at being lazy and that I could work really hard at getting out of work. Um, so what we can do is we can spend more time sitting and reading the Bible and then when someone says, well, you didn't do the laundry. I, I was reading my Bible today. And I mean, do you want me to stop reading my Bible? Of course, that, no one's saying that, but we, you know, we, we can do that. Yes, ma'am? I call that my being married days instead of being working. Yeah, you, you don't, yeah, you, you, uh, yeah. You want to be a combination of both. <laughs> but anyway, so that's, that's kind of the idea that, that, um, that Paul is getting at when he writes these things. Again, he tells us then, because of what uh, we have received um, from the Lord, then the natural thing is to walk in him. And so the idea is that's your daily living. We live our life as a Christian. Every aspect of our life is to be Christian. And 
Christ has something to say about everything in life. Um, and so that's, that's how we are to move and how we are to operate. So then that's why he then adds to that about being rooted and being built up and established in the faith. So rooted means that we become, the idea is becoming stable. Um, I would say in the broadest sense, we become stable in our understanding of the word of God. Therefore, we become stable in our understanding of who Christ is. So therefore, you and I would become much more stable emotionally and spiritually. Uh, most of the time, I, I think it's important for us to try to connect spiritual and emotional. Those, those things need to be together. It's, it's never that we want to get rid of emotions, but our maturing as a believer, what comes along with that, a natural part of that, is going to be maturing emotionally. Because it's emotions that can cause us to be irresponsible in a lot of areas of life, whether it's in the spiritual aspects of our life or fulfilling you know, certain kinds of responsibilities. So there's this, there's this idea that because we are rooted in Christ, that's going to bring to us an understanding of life that enables us to be stable, to not, to not be all over the place emotionally. Um, and again, just remember that just because someone is more emotional than you doesn't mean they're unstable. Um, you know, we're, we're different in those ways. However, even with that difference, we need to recognize that, um, th that we are not to be ruled by our emotions. Then he tells us there... Um, that uh, I, I mentioned that the, the word rooted or being from the rooted, that the verb there is a, is a passive voice. So that means that that is being done to us by God. So the idea that we get from these words and the way that they're written in the Greek language, there is this intimate, continual working of the Spirit of God on us and in us as we are committed and we are working to bring about this maturity in our life. So I am, you know, I, I am reading the Bible, I am studying the Bible, and at the same time, God, this, God the Holy Spirit is working on me and in me and making these changes. So I'm not sitting passively just waiting for God to do this, but I'm not determined to do this somehow thinking God's not a part of this. Uh, so there's this, you want to use the word synergistic, uh, meaning these, you know, these things work better and stronger when they work together. But there's that idea that we are involved in this process, though God is the one who is making this happen uh, in our lives. And so, that's, so Paul wants these individuals then to be determined in their life to make sure that their outlook on life then is going to be deeply affected um, by, uh, by the Word of God, by the Spirit of God. I saw this thing, uh, I don't really look at Twitter much, but I do every now and then. And there's this pastor, he noted this. He was looking at Psalm 119. Psalm 119, there's 176 verses, and it's all about the Word of God. And I think it's, I should have, I should have counted it out loud so I would remember it. Um, it's at least, I think it's t at least 10 times, maybe a dozen times, where these words are used. Teach me. It's throughout, it's throughout Psalm 119. And so the, and it becomes clear that as David is writing that, there is in his, implanted in his mind, this hunger for the word of God and to be taught what it says. Teach me your ways. Teach me your statutes. Teach me your commands. Teach me, you know, teach me your wisdom. Teach me your knowledge. It's, it's always about that. That's striving to receive these things from God. And so that's really, that should, that should be how we would uh, characterize 
our life and pursuit in the Christian life, is that we want to be taught and we want to learn the things of God in that way. So again, uh, um, if you move on, I think it's page... And the one, if, if you have the notes from tonight, all I did was add to what you had last week. Uh, there's another page of notes. But if we move on uh, through the verse, verse 7 again, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So when he tells us there uh, to be established in the faith, what he means by, by that is... Um, to be established in the faith is, is the faith that we've been given. That is the, the, the truth of the word of God. So our faith does grow stronger, but he's speaking of the truths of the word of God that we're being given. So in verse, verse 20 of the book of Jude, it reads, But you, beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So the idea um, with that is the faith here in Jude is called most holy because it comes to us from God. It reveals God to man because it is by its means that man is made righteous. That's how we are enabled to overcome the world. Uh, again, this is done in the Holy Spirit uh, as, as opposed to the, the, the false teachers who are devoid of the Holy Spirit. Um, and so it's a lifelong construction project. You know, the idea is that we're going to be growing for the rest of our lives as believers. Believers, as believers, we are in continual need of the help of the Holy Spirit. Um, one aspect of praying in the Spirit is crying out to Him when we feel like we're overwhelmed with temptation or with the situation that we find ourselves in. Um, we need to remember that God is for us even in moments of great temptation. Uh, so we want to make sure we don't forget about His presence and His power to help us weather whatever the storm is. So the idea is that these truths then... As, as we learn them, they become a part of our thinking process so that when you're going through a time of difficulty, whether, whether it's a personal crisis, a personal health crisis, uh, again, maybe a, some attention with an, a tension between you and another individual, we need to remind ourselves that God is on our side. When I say that, that doesn't mean he's on your side in the argument and you should win. What I mean is he's on your side in that he wants you in this to grow and to develop to mature and to mature no matter where you are in in that in that process that he is there he is not absent and when we when we need wisdom when we need his grace or we need his strength we pray and ask knowing he is going to give it to us that's what we mean when we when we ask God to deliver us when we're in our troubles we know that God normally will not deliver you out of them in other words, he won't make them disappear, but he will deliver you while you are in them, meaning he will provide you with what you need. All right, so there's, so there's not necessarily an easy way through it, but he's going to give you his strength, his grace, his wisdom, his peace to be able to endure whatever it is that God desires for you to go through at that time. And so that's why all these, all these things are given to us by Paul as he writes to these individuals. Life is tough, it's rough, he knows that. There's this expectation of the most holy God as to how we are to live and how we are to grow. He is demanding that we grow and that we mature, but he's given, not only given us the means by giving us um, his word, but he's giving us the assist that we need by giving us his spirit which lives in us. And then again, there is that, 
that interaction of the Spirit using the Word of God, um, as well as other believers. But again, even the other believers that God uses in your life are believers who are being influenced by what? The Scripture. They're growing and maturing in what the Word of God says. And that's the ones who help us uh, have, either by reminding us what the Word of God says, helping us, helping to explain what the Word of God says, maybe just be an example of living out what the Word of God says. Uh, but those are the ones that we depend on, that we learn from, uh, that pray with us, pray for us, as we go through these uh, various kinds of trials that all of us face in life in varying degrees. Uh, and so that's what Paul is trying to encourage here with what he is saying and what he is writing. And he says this to them. He says what he, what he wants them to do when it comes to this, he says, uh, establishing the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So when he says just as you were taught, that means just as you were instructed. So this confirms, as one pastor said, the root digging, foundation laying, guarantee uh, to provide character of the teaching and the establishing of a new church. So the teaching was not something additional uh, to their life. It wasn't something that was less important than the gospel. Uh, this word or this phrase means to teach a student in such a way that the will of the student becomes conformed to the teaching that's taught. So the teacher teaches in such a way that as the student is taught, he now changes his mind, saying in essence, I won't do it this way, but I will do it this way because I've learned this teaching. And a lot of us, as we've grown in our lives as Christians, have thought something like that. Or when we think about our lives, I now do certain things different. Why? Well, because I was taught from the scripture. Um, that's why I do believe uh, this. It's really not so important for you to remember who you've learned things from. Right? All that's important is, is that you are learning what the Word of God says. So if it's something that was taught to you by your parents, something that was taught to you by a Sunday school teacher, either as a kid or as an adult, it was something that you learned in Bible study, whether you were studying it on your own or through someone else or through a book you were reading, or if it's something that you heard through the preaching of the Word of God on Sunday in your church, or maybe you heard a sermon during the week, the idea is that we're learning what the Word of God says. So then there's a day coming where... Somebody may say to you, you, you may be giving advice to someone. They go, wow, that's really good. I like that. How do you know that? Well, what you don't say is, huh, I'm a pretty smart guy. That's how I know. No, we don't say that. And sometimes we may, we're thinking, I, I don't know. I don't know. What. So that doesn't mean that, that you made it up. You just don't remember where you heard it. That's okay. Because the goal is for the knowledge. So what the pastor, at least what they should want, is for their knowledge to become your knowledge. That's what the idea is. And I've told you many times, you know, I do want you to believe what I believe. But I don't want you to believe what I believe because I believe it. I want you to believe what I believe because you've become convinced that is what the scripture says. So if you believe what I believe right away, terrific. If you believe what I believe six months from now, it's just as terrific. Right? It could be because you're stubborn in your sin. No. <laughs> or it could be that you're not yet convinced. But the idea is, is that we're growing together in the Word of God. And so that's why for those who teach, it's important for them to study so they handle the Word of God correctly, they can divide it correctly, so that we can all continue to grow. Because even, even if you're teaching, we should be learning ourselves for ourselves. I want, I want to know this stuff. I don't want to just be able to spout it off 
and say, look at what I know. The idea is for, I want to change and I, I want to get this stuff. I want to understand this stuff. And I do want to be able to explain it. But again, I still want, I want it to be, I want something that comes from inside of me uh, because I am, gr you know, clinging to and grasping the truth of what the Word of God says. Uh, and so that's what Paul is really encouraging these individuals to do um, as believers. Um, so there's, a, there's this great involvement. John MacArthur says this about the word that's used there. He talks about as you were taught. The word taught is didasko, is the Greek word. And he says this. He says it refers to the passing on of information. Often, but not necessarily in a formal setting, it focused on content with the purpose of discovering the truth, contrary to the forms so popular among the Greeks, where discussion and the bantering about of various ideas and opinions was the primary, primary concern. He said, and so then I added this to that because I was thinking through this and a lot of these other Christian philosophy books that I've read. And so this is uh, when it comes to how people sometimes think truth should be determined. So some believe this is the way truth is discovered, a form of synthesis. One person expresses their view followed by one or two or three others. We then go back and forth, and we establish a compromised baseline of understanding. Then that becomes the new standard. That becomes the teaching, not the directions and propositions that come from Scripture. So the idea is, is that we, uh, it's, it's different than how the world tries to figure things out. Because there's, there's not, it's not always wrong for there to be what they call a synthesis taking place. But, but the way that usually liberal theology kind of moves away from the Bible is this. So the Bible, most of the New Testament anyway, is given in what we call propositional statements. This is the truth. This is what is true. Like, this is who Jesus is. It's not just, well, here's some suggestions for you guys to talk about, banter back and forth, and see what you come up with, and see who Jesus is. That's not the way that it's presented. But the way that it goes in some places where they tend to be maybe a little more liberal is they will go through the scripture, and there's a lot of ways they do this, um, but the idea is that we have different people sharing what they think that it means and maybe how it applies to life. And so, we, and so then there may be some contradictory things, things that are kind of out there. And so the one who may be leading the discussion is going to kind of gather the information and say, oh, okay, so we have these, let's say, eight ideas about what we think Paul might be saying. And so then... We, we, we kind of vote on it. It, it, it. Not really vote where we raise hands and tell the thing. But the idea is, is we discuss it some more and we kind of filter away some things and then we come to an understanding that we are comfortable with. And we go, ah, oh, see what Paul, Paul is, Paul is so encouraging. And, and you know, what he really wants these people to do is he wants them to feel good about themselves. He wants them to have this real positive outlook uh, on life. And so he really wants them to be rooted in their friendships with each other because he knows they're going to need each other one day because difficult times will be coming. That's not what he's saying, but that's, that's our synthesis. And so the next time we get together, we'll, uh, or maybe, maybe another time we come together to that book, we'll say, well, last time we discussed about this, what we saw was that Paul really wants these believers to really interact with each other, to be rooted in their friendships, so they can really support each other in the future. And then we talk about it some more. And then someone says, oh, but I've got some other ideas that popped into my mind when you said that. And they share those things, and we may add those things. And so now that verse, is, we're going to add to what that verse means, and pretty soon we keep moving away from the scripture. 
So what we, we need to go back. That's why we take the time to say, well, the verb is present tense. This is an imperative. Or this is active voice. Or in this verse, what's being emphasized is something outside of you is doing, meaning God is the one that's doing this for you. In this verse, this verb has this tense because God is commanding you to do this. And so, that's, and so we are determining what it means based on the text and, and, and the rules of grammar and all those kinds of things. So we're not trying to come to a synthesis so everybody feels like they're a part of the process. So we're not trying to diminish anyone's idea, but the idea is for all of us to conform to what the Bible says. So again, I'm not, I don't want you to conform to what I say unless what I'm saying is exactly what the scripture says. Then I am doing that, right? But it's, it's the scripture. You can go home and check it on your own, right? So you might leave here thinking, well, Bob said we have to do this and have to do that. Well, maybe I did, but hopefully you'll go back and read the scripture and say, well, yeah, Bob did say that, but, th but that is what the Bible says. It, it's right there. You know, that's kind of the idea. So the goal then, as we study, is for all of us, including the teacher, to submit to what the Word of God is actually saying. And so that's why um, there's all these commentaries that are available, um, all of these reference works that are out there um, for us to be able to, uh, to check to make sure that we can enhance our understanding. And then even with that, we have individuals then who, who are good teachers who also give us warnings that, well, just because there's a commentary on this book doesn't mean that what you're going to read is good. Because these, other, these individuals have their own ideas that they're adding to that. Um, a real simple example of this, I was talking to a, a, a man once. This was when I was a chaplain of the jail. He was in the medical ward. He was dying of AIDS. Um, he had gotten AIDS through... Um, uh, he got an HIV virus through uh, um, sharing needles with a guy. He was kind of a kind of a drug dealer. He was a very violent uh, man on the outside. You know, when he went to go collect money that people owed him, he I mean, he'd just jump on him and break their arm and just all kind of stuff. He was just kind of known for doing that. And um, so he had toward the toward as the AIDS advanced somehow. He had become very involved in the homosexual lifestyle. He wasn't that way before, but he kind of moved into that direction for whatever the reason. And so we were talking about some things, and so he said, uh, he said, look, he said, I keep hearing all these opinions. I want to know what does God really say about my life? And I said, anything specific? He goes, yeah, I'm gay. I want to know what it says. So I said, okay. So we went to Romans and went to there first. And so I read to him from Romans chapter 1. And so he said, ah. He said, well, let me tell you what I think that means, because I think you got it wrong. I said, really? He said, oh, yeah. He said, so as we went through Romans 1, Romans 1 talks about a man leaving the natural use of the woman, basically to do that which is unnatural and, and would be against God's law. So he said, because I like men, then for me to be with a woman, that's unnatural. So what this verse is telling me is, is I need to do what's natural for me, and you need to do what's natural for you. And if I do what's unnatural for me, or you do what's unnatural for you, God is displeased with that. And I said, that's a nice try, but that's not what it says. I said, God is the one who establishes what is natural, not us. Because everything's been perverted by sin, everything. 
Everything's been corrupted. I said, so if God says man has left the natural use of the woman, the presumption there is the natural established by God is that men and women should be together, which that's reinforced when you go back to the book of Genesis. You start with creation, and God says over and over, he created them male and female. And we go from there throughout the rest of the scripture, and that's established, and that is confirmed. I said, so God has established what is natural, so he's telling you that if you want to be with another man, that is unnatural, and that is sin against God, because you're going against, you're rebelling against God's created order, uh, and even though you may feel like that's natural, remember that, you're, that you can fool yourself, and the Bible talks about being self-deceived, and so you've been deceived for whatever the reason, and I said, and so you are rebelling against what God has said. And I said, for all of us who become Christians, what we are doing is we are submitting ourselves to what the scripture says, not just about what we would call spiritual truth, but about everything. God is the one who created everything. He established everything. It's his world. It's his creation. It's, it is his rules. He establishes what is right and wrong. We don't establish what's right and wrong. We submit to what he says is right or wrong. And uh, so, he, so he told me, he said, well, that makes a lot of sense, but I don't like that. I said, well, I said, I, mean, I understand that. I said, but, that, but you want me to tell you the truth? That is the truth. I said, reread it on your own and think about what's there when you read it. Remember what we've discussed and tell me if you don't think that what you're saying is you're trying to find a way to skirt around and twist what Paul's actually said. So it was, it was a few days later, we talked again, and I asked him if he had, had thought about it. Um, I don't know if you know this, but it, when you begin to suffer from AIDS, when it becomes advanced, it can mess with your memory. Uh, it begins to mess with that a little bit. And so he, he had a hard time remembering everything we talked about, but he had, he had most of it. It was down in bits and pieces. And um, so I asked him, I said, the only way to get for you to be reconciled with the truth is for you, I said, you have to repent. I said, this is not God picking on you just because you're gay. God says this to everyone. Everyone, whatever their sins are, that's rebelling against God. So the only way that anyone is reconciled to God is by repenting of their sin and asking God to forgive them uh, and, and then committing themselves to God and moving forward from there. And, I, and so I said, if you have more questions, we can certainly talk about them. Uh, or you can submit, if you believe that you're ready, you can submit uh, to God today and you can repent of your sin. And Christ has said that he would save you. And he says, oh, I'm not ready for that yet. I said, okay. But, but now he and I, you know, he already talked about the fact that he was dying of AIDS. So I told him, I said, you do know you don't have a lot of time. I said, I mean, I don't know if you're going to die, you know, this week or next week or even in three months. I said, but your time is short. And I said, it's already starting to mess with your mind a little bit. And, I, you know, I don't want you to be in a position where, you know, you just stop thinking about this and you don't do what I think is the most important thing in the world you can do. And he said, oh, yeah, 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 I'm, I'm not going to. He was, I, I know I need to think about this and whatever. So, so we talked a, a couple more times after that that week. And then um, the next week, uh, I went by to see him, and he, he was with a doctor, so I couldn't see him. So I went by the next day, and he wasn't feeling good, so he didn't want to see me. And then the third day, he was dead. 
and he never became a believer. But you see, what he had done with that is he had, he was trying to find a way to twist the scripture so that, in a sense, it made sense, and, and he'd heard that in a Bible study, um, not one in the jail, but he'd heard that in a Bible study that he'd been to, where the individual had taught them, using the Bible, that what, that ver- what those verses meant was that God doesn't want you to go against what is natural for you. And so therefore, and that was the interpretation that he obviously gravitated to. Um, and so that's why, again, we have warnings when it comes to the word of God that we check what's being taught and uh, ask questions and think about those kinds of things, regardless of what's being taught. So, you know, I want people in, in, in this church, I want people to, to question. I don't want them just to question, just to question things. But if they're unclear on something or they think a verse, well, that verse doesn't really mean that. I want them to ask. Now, I'm going to try to convince them. That, that's not a bad thing. I think it's, it's good to go back and forth. But, and I want to know their reasoning, you know, if they have any. Uh, sometimes people just say, well, I, just, I don't like that. You've painted me in a corner and I don't want to be different. Well, that's a whole different issue. Um, but the idea is that, that is how we grow. And it's okay to question things. Uh, that, that doesn't mean that you're accusing anyone of anything. You, I mean, you, you believe that they're in error or that they're wrong or they've misunderstood and you want to know more. Well, how did you get that? How did you? Because I don't see that or whatever it happens to be. And that needs to be explained. That's a good thing for us to do as Christians. So whether you're coming here or any church you go to, any pastor who does take seriously studying and teaching the Word of God will welcome questions. Sometimes we're human beings. We can be in a bad mood and we don't like the way you question us. All right, that's on us. But, but the idea is, is that anyone who loves teaching wants questions to be asked because it means you're, inter, you're, you're interacting with, with the Scripture. And that's always profitable. In fact, I'm convinced that there are times that um, some of the really big disagreements in churches uh, has been used by God to advance the teaching of His Word because it forces people to go back to the Scripture to try to find a way, like they're, like. They, they, they may be come up against an argument they've never heard before, and they go, whoa, that's actually a really good point. How, how do we answer that? Because I don't like where that's headed. And so I have to go back and re- now, you know, I need to go back and restate the scripture to make sure that I, I really have it right so that I know that it really is wrong. And then why is that wrong? Why is that wrong headed? Or does that contradict something else in the scripture or whatever it happens to be? So we're the better for that uh, when that takes place. And so through the years... Uh, in church history, there's been some debates that have lasted decades, or some some cases, centuries. And we've benefited from that. Uh, the main one being you know, what they call the Arian controversy, which is about who was Christ. Uh, it was about 300 years that there was this back and forth trying to hammer out what does the scripture say about who Jesus is. So what, what most of us, maybe all of us have heard, even if you went to Sunday school as a child, what you were taught about Jesus Christ came out of 300 years of individuals going back and forth, studying the Word of God to make sure they had it right. So we benefit from that. So I don't have to go through 300 years of study. I wouldn't quite make it uh, <laughs> that was the case. Uh, but we benefit from that. And so that's all those things are kind of built into this. And yet at the same time, even though that was being debated in the church, God still holds us responsible for what we're supposed to know, what we're supposed to learn, and what we're supposed to apply as individuals. Then along with that, he says at the end of verse 7, 
uh, as he mentions them being taught, he says abounding in thanksgiving. Uh, some translations may use the word overflowing with, tra- with, uh, with thanksgiving. Um, again, this is in the present tense. So the idea is this is to be the habit of our life. So the habit of our life is, is that we are um, uh, abounding with this attitude of gratitude for the things that we're being taught. Uh, we are grateful that God is teaching us, that others are teaching us these truths about God and who God is and what God expects from us. Uh, the result of the fact that we are rooted and being continually built up and established is we are abounding with thanksgiving. And that, and that affects your attitude about everything in life. And if you, are, if you just are a grateful person, that affects the way that you just come across to people. Um, that eliminates this idea that we're arrogant and we think we're better than others. Because again, if you've ever been in a discussion with anybody where there's a disagreement about religion or disagreement about aspects of religion, some individuals can get upset and the accusation is made, you think you're better than me. And now it could be, if just, they could just throw that out and, and they're just using that just to kind of deflect. But we want to make sure that we're not coming across that way. Uh, that can be hard because we, we, we are allowed to have absolute confidence in what the Word of God says. So that's why then when, you know, when I teach, um, I normally don't say, well, we're pretty sure, but we could be wrong, that Jesus is God. Okay, I would never say it that way. I'm going to be very dogmatic because the Word of God is dogmatic. He is, period. So then if I get asked the question, can a person be a Christian and not believe that Jesus is God? The answer would be no. You can't be a Christian and not believe that Jesus is God. That would be considered a fundamental. Somebody, someone else may ask, can you be a Christian and believe that the earth is five billion years old? Yes, absolutely you can be a Christian. I think you're wrong, but you can be a Christian. Because right? that's not a fundamental. Right? And so we have to be able to determine those differences and, and, and the importance of certain things. But when the scripture is dogmatic, we are allowed to be that way. We're allowed to be dogmatic. Um, I also do think this, that normally um, the teachers that you will learn the most from will be dogmatic teachers, even if they're wrong on stuff. Because if they're wrong, then you've got to prove them wrong. But, you know, they got, you know, they got their facts and you've got to get yours and study. Uh, but those who are, do- you know, just what it, we learn a lot from those individuals. The ones who are wishy-washy, you know, well, what is the truth? Because he keeps saying, well, it could be this, it could be that. Well, what is it? You know, <laughs> take a stand on something. Um, so, uh, again, the idea, though, is that this is to develop in us. So there's, there's never to be then cynicism. There's never to be arrogance. Uh, there's, we're never to have any kind of a, a, you know, a wrong attitude towards others um, when it comes to, to teaching. There's no room for that. The idea is that we are to be grateful. Uh, and normally individuals, that, that seems to be the norm for Christians who are learning, is they're very grateful. You know, we've been delivered out of error. Uh, you know, in, uh, in, I know this, is tr- this used to be true in a ton of churches where there was, a, there was a growing number of individuals who were Catholic who became Christian and they ended up leaving the Catholic church, you know, because the Catholic church doesn't quite get the gospel right. And so they leave the Catholic church. And most of those individuals, maybe all of them, will tell you something to the effect, I am grateful for the things that I learned because I was believing the wrong thing. 
You know, I was believing the wrong thing about God. I was believing the wrong thing about my sin. I was believing the wrong thing about heaven. Uh, and now I believe the right things. And those things make a huge difference in your life. Um, and it's important to make sure we get those things. We, it's easy for us to be unaware of how powerful the truth of the Word of God is on our lives. But it makes a profound difference. Again, the example, as many of you know, you know, my mom passed away three weeks ago now. So when my mom passed away, and I've been, I've, you know, I've done a lot of funerals. I've been in a lot of situations where people have passed away, both believers and non-believers, mostly believers, but but both. Seeing how families respond, see how individuals respond to death, and what goes on with that. And um, you know, we we want to. We make allowances for the fact that we're all different and we are in different places in our growth as believers. However, there is a great comfort that we sometimes aren't always aware of when someone that you love dearly, as close to you, dies and that person is a believer. Even though there is grief and maybe even great grief, there is still, it's still very different and how it impacts you compared to how things would impact a non-believer when someone they're close to who's a non-believer passes. They experience a profound emptiness that you just don't experience. You may even at times say, I really feel empty because they're gone, but you're not experiencing the profound emptiness that they experience. You're not going to experience profound despair, at least you shouldn't. Um, even if you're a new believer, you, you, you won't... Uh, experience that because it's based on much, just more than a knowledge of what the Word of God says. Remember the Spirit of God is indwelling us and, it, and one of the names for the Holy Spirit is the Comforter. There is a real comfort uh, that we experience from God uh, when we go through those times. But that makes all the difference in the world. I have been with families who are not religious in any way, shape, or form and they're facing the death of a loved one who also has no interest in anything that is spiritual and been with them in the room when that person has passed away and then listen to the things that they say and how they handle that. And again, everyone's different, but there is a, there is a profound emptiness that is eerie. And, and on a few occasions, what I have heard, which to me is a, uh, it's hard to describe how horrible it would be to have this attitude. But I remember I was in a room once where there was a guy, his wife had died, they'd been married for, I think, about 40 years or so. Uh, she had died of pancreatic cancer. Um, and when she died, you know, we're, I'm with the family in the room. There was a lot of silence. And then after a while, the husband said, well, I guess that's it. And then he got up and left, and, and they all left. I'm like, man. <clears throat> For them, that's it. There's nothing else. I mean, talk about an emptiness and a sense of meaninglessness in life that they have, in a sense, they've just embraced. They, they've embraced that. Life doesn't, it doesn't get any better than whatever they had, and this is just how it ends, and it's just kind of, you know, whatever. And that's, I just, I just know how people do that, especially, you know, as, if you, if you have the blessing of growing older, one of the things that we all begin to experience is we all start going to more funerals. You know, when you're in your 40s, you go to a couple of funerals. When you're in your 50s, you go to a couple of funerals. 
But then when you start hitting your 60s, you're going to more funerals because more of your friends, as well as family members, are all passing away. You know, when we hit 70s, you go to even more. And if you're still living in your 80s, you're going to one all the time. All right? So we're, so we're surrounded by death. But imagine if for you, if this is all there is, I mean, how depressing would that be? It's already sad enough that people are dying. But how depressing would that be? Because there's no thought, not really, that you'll see him again. There's no thought that that person is now nothing more than a memory. Nothing more than a memory. We all know, and some people have a hard time sometimes in grieving because we begin to, we don't think about the one who died that much. I mean, life, life does go on. So I'm not thinking about my mom 24 hours a day. I don't, I don't, don't do that. Um, I have memories. When I get to the family, we sometimes share those memories. But that's still, I know in time, there'll be less and less of that. So does that mean that person is disappearing from life? No, because my mom's still alive. She's the Lord. I'm going to see her again. All right, so I don't have to even get all caught up in worrying about I, I can't remember that person anymore. I can't hear their voice anymore. Because some people, it really bothers them when that begins to happen to them. You know, they talk about, I, you know, especially sometimes kids, a, a parent dies unexpectedly young. And after a while, it's like because they can't remember. Unless they have pictures, they can't remember their face. They can't remember their voice. And they feel like they're really losing that person. Because this is all they have and they're clinging to it. They can go through a lot of great difficulty. How much better would it be, especially if it's true, that I know that you're forgetting what mom sounded like, but you will remember her voice when you see her again. Because she will, she's the same, except she's actually now perfect. And she's not in any pain. And, you know, and will she know me? I'm convinced from what, this, what I see in Scripture. Yes, she will know who you are, and you will know who she is. Right? Just... It, the bottom line is not, you know, because some people think that, well, when we get to heaven, all these relationships we have here, all that just disappears. No, I don't think, it doesn't disappear. It just all gets better. It all gets better. So the idea is, is so not, so if, if, let's say my wife dies before me, hopefully that'll be in another 25 years, but, but if she <laughs> dies before me, then when, if, if, when I join her in heaven, not only will our relationship be perfect, but I'll actually have that kind of relationship with everybody. There'll be that closeness with everyone. I mean, it'd be, it's nuts. I mean, the, the sense of fulfillment that comes just from sharing your life with one person. Imagine having the capacity to share your life with everyone you know, and they share their life with you, and there's a perfect intimacy. Um, it's, just, it's very difficult to try to even be able to explain and comprehend, but we will have that. And so that's very profound. Yes, ma'am. Do we look, are we going to look the same? Like we will, I know we will at least be similar. Because remember when Jesus appeared, at times they didn't recognize him at first, but then when he spoke, it says they recognized him. No one says, man, did he look different. No one's saying that. All right? So uh, we know that Jesus was recognizable. And then we know that, uh, remember when, when um, Jesus appeared, on the, we call it the Mount of Transfiguration, when Elijah and Moses appeared with him. So Peter, James, and John are there. Peter, James, and John clearly have never met Elijah and Moses before. Those men died way before those guys were ever born. Yet when Moses and Elijah appear, those men knew, wow, there's Elijah and Moses. They knew them. So 
their recognition was obviously a revelation of God, but they didn't look like non-humans. They looked like human beings, and there was a distinction between the two of them because they didn't say, oh, look, there's twins. All right? So it's not like all these, the, the distinctions that God created in the beginning, in the book of Genesis, and the distinctions that there are between us, not just male and female, but even the distinctions of how we look here, all those things, I'm convinced, remain. That was, that's what God designed, was this diversity. And it's going to remain there. Um, so whatever flaws we have, I guess, will disappear. Um, we have to, I think we just have to be careful how we presume that will be. Um, I mean, I don't think people will be limping around and dragging their legs and stuff. But, but, I, but, I, but I do believe that, uh, again, there, we will recognize each other and we will look similar to how we look here, except obviously the curse of sin is, is removed. Um, which would be kind of cool, um, to say the least. So I can't, we can only, you can only go so far with that. You can speculate all you want, but it's a speculation, to say the least. Okay, well, wow. Um, we'll just start verse 8 next time. Um, anyway, so hold, hold on to your notes, if you don't mind, and uh, then I won't have to cook up a whole bunch more. And uh, we'll pick it up in verse 8 and move forward, all right? Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your grace and love. We thank you again, Lord, for all that Paul has written and what he is encouraging these Colossians to do, what he's encouraging them to be, how he is uh, describing how they are to be involved in life and what is expected from them. We pray, Lord, that this would be the desire that we have. That, Father, that we ourselves will want to be rooted and built up in the faith. That, Father, we, we will want teaching uh, to abound in our lives as Christians. And then we want that, Lord, to have such an effect on us that we are overflowing with gratitude in our lives as believers. That the truth of your word will permeate every aspect of our being, especially, Lord, the way that we think, so that it will, it will color uh, our understanding of the world and help us to see it clearly. That, Lord, it, it, it'll serve as a guide uh, to help us to see accurately the world that you created. We ask, Lord, that it would uh, enable us, Father, to form the kinds of attitudes that we are to have towards others that will reveal to others really what you have done in our lives, that you are transforming us into people that can think, but also that we are people who are nice and loving and kind and happy. Uh, that will be individuals who will take uh, what you say very seriously. That will have a great love and compassion for other people. And that, Lord, that we'll be able to present to others uh, this wonderful life that you've given to us. And so we pray that you help us, Father, as individuals to grow as Christians and to overcome sin, to overcome the ugliness that may be in our lives. We just thank you, Lord, for being so patient with us. And so we ask now, Lord, as we are dismissed from our time together, that you would guide and direct us. And again, you would continue to lead us in your truth. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.